Digital Gonzo episode 55, dated Sunday the 5th of February 2012. The Harry Potter movie reviews, year two, The Chamber of Secrets. One year ago, he learned the truth. You're a wizard, Harry. And his first year at Hogwarts school became legend. And so, for Harry Potter and his friends, another year begins. Bloody birds are menace. The education in the magical arts continues. Laugh if you will, Mr. Finnegan. See what you make of them. No! Old rivalries grow stronger. Slytherin's got a new seeker. Malfoy. You know that's me, Potter. And something in the school's dark past will be awakened. The Chamber of Secrets has indeed been opened. Unless the culprit is caught, it is likely the school will be closed. Harry Potter must go home. Here's the plan. You disguise yourselves as Crabbe and Goyle. Are we going to drink that? Yes. Harry? Ron. Excellent. Warner Brothers Pictures presents... How dare you steal that car! The next chapter of Harry Potter. Where the past will return and the struggle for the future of Hogwarts will begin. <laughs> Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Let us hope that Mr. Potter will always be around to save the day. Don't worry. I will be. One year older, Harry returns to Hogwarts in a flying Ford Anglia, and we are back for the second of eight podcasts to discuss the film, the story, and various appropriate focus points. With me are Gonzo Planet's Sharon Shaw. Hello. Gamer Dork Reroll Top Dog Leah Haydu. I don't have any smart comments about the, the title this week. Very sad. And from Game Burst, we have Posh Zombie James Batchelor. Okay, right. Now, one of the allegations leveled at director Chris Columbus by film critic Mark Kermode is that he is a bean counter, more interested in satisfying broad demographics than focusing on a personal story. So, in accordance with bean counter Chris, we're going to look back at the box office success of the eight Potter films. This is kind of a guessing game for you guys. We're going to start with Philosopher's Stone, which cost $125 to make, and it made... Anyone on this one? No clue. $975 million. Wow. Not a bad start. Yeah. Do you think Chamber of Secrets made more or less? More. Oh, I think uh, it made less. Yeah, I'm going to go with less. It did make less. It made 878. Uh, it took uh, 12 months to come out. Why did just over $100 million worth of tickets not turn up for the second show? I don't know. <laughs> did they just think the first one was kiddie and they're like, eh, disappointing? Possibly the people who did think that it was kiddie now had Lord of the Rings and went, okay, we'll go with that instead. Most of the people that I know that read the books went, so there was kind of the guaranteed sales, but maybe they lost the kind of the extended sales. The people that went and felt that, and, and enjoyed the first film, but felt that they should have read the book, maybe. 
I mean, my, da- my dad, for example, was dragged along out of habit to all of the Potter films. So I imagine if he didn't, if he didn't, hadn't been forced to, he would have stopped at film one. Right. There will be an element of dads that stops going. <laughs> because film one just felt a bit too kiddified. Possibly. 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 Next one, Prisoner of Azkaban. Do you think it made more or less than Chamber? I hope more. More, yeah. I'll say more. Okay. I'm going to go with more as well. took 18 months to come out uh, between November 2002 and May 2004. That's a long time for the kids. We'll talk about that next week. It made less. Ooh. 797. 80 million less again. So it is and following it, the law of diminishing returns so far. And it cost... Um, well, first one was 125 million. Second one was 100 million. Third one, 130 million. So an extra 30 million, and it made 80 million less. So at this point... Suddenly the franchise is not looking so healthy. I believe at that point, were they talking of canning it? Or at least not making the rest of them? There was, there was a danger at that point. But then again, they still looked at the numbers and went, 130 million investment, 797 million dollars back. Yeah, that's not exactly a failure. No. It's, it's less than incredible Avatar numbers, but it's still pretty good. Um, as it stands, Azkaban is the one that people have been to see in the cinema the least, which is ironic, because some might call it the best. I really like Azkaban. It's one of my favorites. Love it. So, uh, November 2005, 20 months later, Goblet of Fire comes out. I don't know if you could tell from that clue I just gave you there. Do you think it made more or less than Azkaban? More. More. It can only possibly have made more than the one that made the least of all. Cost $150 million, made $897 million. Still not as good as Philosopher's Stone, but really pretty good. Uh, and this was a huge one because they, they, this was the first uh, Harry Potter that was actually billed basically as an action movie. A family-friendly one, but there was a lot of big action sequences in this one. And uh, it kind of cemented the series at this point where it was like, okay, we are going to carry on with these. 20 months later, Order of the Phoenix came out, July 2007. More or less than Goblet of Fire? More. Less. Yeah, I'm going to go with more again. It is more. Now, you wouldn't have thought it, because Goblet of Fire was huge, but Order of the Phoenix made some serious bank. In fact, at the time, it made second only to uh, Philosopher's Stone. Again, $939 million, and it cost $150 million, same as Goblet. Then there was 24 months, two years, to Half-Blood Prince. Same director, completely same team. Should have actually come out the Christmas of the previous year, but as we said, The Dark Knight came out that summer, and they were trying to hold it back for tax reasons. So we had to wait for a lot longer. Half-Blood Prince, you think it made more or less than Phoenix? I want to say less. You'd be right. 934. Still only five less. Five million less. Not so bad. But here's the kicker. Phoenix cost 150 million. Half-Blood, 250 million. I've got to ask where that extra 100 million went. So, given how much they cut out and didn't yeah. do... It's, it's, it's a quite a personal character-based film. 250 million, that made it one of the most expensive films ever made. Well, they did destroy the Millennium Bridge. I, they didn't destroy the actual Millennium Bridge. <laughs> Are you sure? I definitely saw some million. scuff marks on it last time I walked over. You could almost buy a Millennium Bridge for 100 million. That so. would be great. If they did actually destroy they it, they bought it. one back. Yeah, that, that would have been good. But it can't just have gone on that one stunt. No. Seriously. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Half-Blood made a little bit less, but considerably less considering the amount that it cost. Now, here's the interesting bit. Deathly Hallows, parts one and two, 250 million between them. They really? shared that budget, making 
125 million per film. Now, bear in mind that the marketing for both of them had to be sustained, so the marketing was going to be insane for both of these th- films. So you're going to add at least another 100 million, maybe 200 million, just to get this thing in the public eye. So Deathly Hallows Part 1 came out 16 months after Half-Blood Prince in November 2010. Uh, do you think it made more or less than Half-Blood? I would hope more. more. Mm-hmm. Given that yes. it's the big finale, it's the roundup. So yeah, 957 uh, versus 934, so it made more. And then eight months later, Deathly Hallows Part Two came out. The most. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as uh, as we said last week, uh, which James actually you haven't heard yet, third highest grossing film of all time. It made one billion three hundred twenty nine million dollars. So these films have made Warner Brothers quite a few quid over the years. Just a bit. Yeah. For me, the first two felt much more like companions to the book. From third onwards, they were really trying to be films. The, the first one, obviously, I had to play it safe because there were so many fans of the books and the book series. The, the books were a literary phenomenon unlike anything that had been seen in decades. They had taken off in a way that no one had expected and no one could remember the last time that books had become that popular and got that many people reading, not just kids. I think it was specifically the Lord of the Rings, yeah, speaking for college kids in the 70s and 60s. Exactly. And, but this was something universal. It got families and kids and parents and everyone. They started releasing you know, the hardback covers with the more kind of gritty, dramatic covers so that adults you know, and business commuters and people reading the Financial <laughs> Times didn't look like they were reading a children's book on the train to London. But thought. with that many f- fans and with the dreadful kind of reputa- reputation of books to films or any kind of other media to film adaptation, mm. they had to play it safe. You could not afford to betray an audience that large with a film that went off in its own direction. So by film two, yeah, film one worked out brilliantly, everyone loved it, but film two, they're still treading very carefully because they need to keep everyone in and they need to keep everyone committed for the next seven at that time and eight, as it turned out, films because they're in it for the long run. You can't afford to start upsetting people at the start, given how long-term a plan this was for Warner. Okay, so talking about differences from the book, the nearly headless Nick's birthday scene, that was cut out. Vernon falls out the window in the film. He doesn't do that in the book. There's no denoming scene, like digging up gnomes and chucking them over the uh, fence. The gnomes had invaded the garden of the burrow, yeah. The whole thing that bothered me about that was that you just really didn't spend enough time at the Weasleys there, because they're, you, you just didn't get the really high contrast between that and the Dursleys. But that's know, the thing, I, they didn't show the Dursleys last time anyway, so why bother with the Weasleys? Just get him to There hold. was a whole lot less, uh, again, same same problem as the first one, there was a whole lot less of the uh, of the Dursleys at the yeah. first part. And that that actually, um, that, that bugged me too, because it was, um, they're, one of the big changes that they made from the book to the movie is they do not mention that you're not supposed to, uh, that underage wizards are not supposed to do magic yeah, outside magic, of school. Yeah. Um, that came up in a couple of places. It comes up because in the book, Harry's kind of been tormenting Dudley a little bit to keep him off his back because mm. he keeps, you know, kind of implying that he can do magic, even though he doesn't actually. And he actually gets a letter after Dobby drops the, the pudding in the, in the very beginning. It doesn't happen. And then, yeah. um, I think there's another bit where, um, 
uh, Hermione fixes his glasses after after they pop out in Diagon Alley, and in the book, it's um, uh, I think it's Mister Weasley who does that because she. Yeah. But yeah, that yeah. that actually kind of bothered me because they it, they do allude to it at the end of the f- uh, first film. Hagrid says, you know, mm-hmm. well, you could, you could tell him that you could uh, give him some ears to go with the tail. I'm not allowed to use magic, Hagrid, but he don't know that. Right, I think, but that, I think like but, one of Harry's first lines in this one is, "I can't let you out, the Hedwig." I'm not allowed to do magic. Right. You're right. Although, to, to skip to next week, it still annoys me that we all, the, the first two films, regardless of how briefly you mention it, do establish that underage wizards are not allowed to do magic, and yet you see him reading under the um, under his covers. Lumos. Lumos. Lumos, yeah. And that's just, that irritated me. It just bothers me that they didn't make a bigger deal out of that, because it's kind of it, it's kind of important, particularly later on. Yeah. I know. I quite. I quite like the um, the the burrow scene. As as short as it was, and as brief as it was, and you're right, it was too brief. The the part where they come into the um, into the kitchen and you can see, you know, knitting that's doing itself and washing up that's doing itself, and more importantly, the Weasley clock that says in life peril. You know, sorry, in peril, home, travel, prison. whatever, and it yeah, prison, <laughs> and it moves, and like it just. They showed you enough snapshots of exactly what I thought the burrow looked like, and it it was. This, that vision of the burrow is exactly how I imagine it. No creepy cornfields from later on. Exactly how I pictured you the burrow. You didn't like the creepy cornfields that they made up. <laughs> I really didn't like the creepy cornfields. It is exactly how I pictured the burrow to be, and therefore, all, although the, sh- the snapshot of it was brief, it just it felt like it felt comfortable and homely to me. It's like, ah, oh, this is the burrow. I know this place. I've read so much about this place. It's great to finally see it. Sharon, you have a theory on flu powder. Yes. Um, the the fact that... Okay, the, the Weasleys travel by flu powder um, and they spend the whole time that they're in Diagon Alley walking around looking very grubby, um, which not every witch and wizard walking around there doesn't look like that. So um, I was kind of... We were talking about alternative means of travelling and obviously wizards who haven't got children with them can apparate, so they're fine. Um, and I came up with this theory that flu powder is... It's imprecise um, and it's mucky and it, it seems to be more sort of... a che- Maybe like a cheaper form of travel, like if you were a, a more... Um, upmarket, for want of a better word, wizarding family, then you might travel by port key or, or something else that, that doesn't have that mm. leaving so covered in soot. It's, it's getting the bus rather than the train. Exactly, yeah. 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 I'm going I'm I'm to go off on a little bit. never really thought again. of it like that. That's awesome. Go, Leah. I, I'm not sure whether this part bothers me or not, but it it is kind of a difference that they make a pretty big deal in the book about the Weasleys' money troubles, about how they're not very well off, but, you know, it it's not... It's not necessarily that it's a big deal uh, to them, but it is a big deal to some other people like Malfoy, who, again, they don't, I, I think, I don't know, you, this is probably on your list, but he doesn't, uh, Harry does not meet Malfoy in, in um, Nocturne Alley, uh, as he does in the book. Um, but that's that's kind of a, a thing for them. You know, there's even a comment in there about, oh, we're almost out of flu powder. <sighs> I guess we're going to have to buy some more. You know, it, she, it, there's kind of a one-off line where where they get their, their lists of books, and one of the twins says, oh, this looks like it's going to be expensive, and yeah. she just kind of goes, oh, we'll yeah. manage, and that's it. That's, you know, there's there's nothing else there. And it's... It's it just, just seems like set. something that's... Like, uh, is there any one place we can get these? Diagonally. Off yeah. we go, children. As opposed <laughs> to 
that was that was a proper filmic kind of lever line, wasn't it? Right, right. These kids, these shoes, and there's seven of them. It also bothers me that the <laughs> one time that Harry has any trouble with his speech, with his diction at all, is when he's in the fireplace. He never ever has that kind of trouble anywhere else, except when he goes diagonal alley, just I to make sure that he ends how. up somewhere else. Diagon alley. It sounds like diagonally. He says diagonally. That doesn't sound like nocturne alley. No. I don't get why it's confused. It's I, imprecise. I don't know. He's lucky he didn't turn up with his head protruding from his back. There is, um, with regards to the Weasleys' money issues, um, I mean, I know you don't know as much about other families, but they do seem to be a particularly large family, and that doesn't seem to be especially common. Um, and so obviously that's uh, a part of it. Um, but um, I think there is a, a Malfoy says something in the first one about second-hand robes and... Mm. Tattered robes, tattered books. It's like he, he's taking Did your hair vacant expression? Yeah, and they've all yes. picked up second hand books, which is how the, the diary kind of goes unnoticed because there are a lot of shabby tattered books in mm. Ginny's bag or cauldron or whatever she's carrying them in anyway. I do like the fact that Jason Isaacs has actually set out to win Draco some points by being just as horrible and then going one louder for being Lucius. It, it's you, you begin to, tell, to see it at that point. Oh, that's why he's like that. Yeah. So Draco becomes just a little bit at this point sympathetic. And later on, you start to really realize that he could have been so much more of a person were it not for the terrible influence of his father. I still want to stab him at this point. <laughs> yeah, at this point. But I mean, he actually, there is a point in uh, film seven where he, he proves his worth a little bit. It's a kind of oddball moment, but it's when he's confronted with Harry with the uh, stinging curse and he doesn't, he doesn't say, yeah, that's Harry. I can tell in his eyes. Yeah. And he could have done, but he knows deep down it's the wrong thing to do. And that's why Harry gives him that little approving smile at the very end. Oh, by the way, in case you didn't know, James, this is total spoiler territory. We can talk about all the films. Awesome. I'm going. Apparently, in the book, I haven't actually read it in ages, there was a brawl between Arthur and Lucius in, in uh, the bookshop. Really? I don't remember yes. that at all. Yes, there is. Um, yeah, Ow. I know. I actually, I, I'm actually making a concerted effort to keep up with the books as we're doing this so that I have it very fresh in my mind. Thank but, you. Yeah. <laughs> but you yes, no, there is. I'd, I'd actually kind of forgotten very about short that. <laughs> that, that, was actually, my, yeah. that was my plan, but I just, I don't have time to read them. Three some pages. Yes. Well, hey, you know, I have time. Um, <laughs> yeah, at least, you know, we get to the later ones and I'm trying to bust through, you know, 700 page book in two days. But, um, no, it, um, there, there is, and I, I'd actually forgotten about that until you said that because it's not. It, it doesn't seem to be a particularly big deal, but yeah, it, it it's a lot um, less civil than it is in the film when they just kind of glare at each other. But in he does, film. and I, I said this. He glances at the kids and gives a uh, Arthur. This is sorry. He looks at the kids and gives a, a little forced smile, and then looks back at Lucius as if to say, "I'm not getting into this in front of the children." Um, let's go back a little bit, because we haven't really talked about Dobby. Um, now, he came to our screens just a few weeks before Gollum. In terms of a step up from Jar Jar Binks a few years previously, for a fully CGI realised character, 
Dobby was a big jump up, and to my mind, Gollum was even further. Dobby actually freaks out Lyra a little bit. She ran upstairs twice today when he turned up. Um, she, she was okay th- with him at the end? Yeah. But uh, I had to convince her uh, the second time when he turns up in the uh, sick bay. I had to go upstairs and say, Dobby likes Harry Potter. He doesn't want to hurt him. He's just he, he just does the wrong thing sometimes. And I had to convince her of that one. Well, there's that but, and there's the fact that he beats himself up, which is kind of scary yeah. in and of itself. This film doesn't get anywhere near as much credit as people uh, should have done for going for practical effects. I'd imagine Neil mm. really likes it because he is a fiend for practical. Um, and the first one, I never mentioned this last time, but suffers from a syndrome I like to call, and I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, Millennial Rubber. This is where you get a uh, digitized child and you fling them about all over the place, usually on a broom or they're falling off or something, and they, they just look like a weird rubber doll. It specifically happens all the time in the first one. It happens when Neville gets flung around the place. It happens every time they play Quidditch. And the second one, they've really looked at it and addressed it, and they've, the effects folks must have looked back on the first film and just face-palmed every time they got the millennial rubber. And they've really paid attention to this in the second one, so you get as much actual Dan Radcliffe sitting on a broom as possible and they only show like interlinking shots when he spins around that, that would actually hurt the actor and then they cut straight back to Dan for the actual interlinking so they've really pulled their socks up for the second one but just because everything else seems the same you don't get that sense of progression that you do between films two and three this is mm. skipping forward a little bit but speaking of practical effects um, is Fox completely animatronic? No, he switches back and forth. Is he? Because he, I, I, I noticed it a couple of times, and I thought that really doesn't look computer generated. Which I, I like that. I like that they did that. It's it's good to basically go back and forth and, and do practical as much as you can uh, and CGI when necessary. Mm. That way, people get the the heft and and the texture of something practical without going. Well, that's clearly CGI. Especially back in the turn of the century when CGI wasn't quite there. These days, it would be a bit more seamless. Mm. But still, you, you can't beat a fantastic practical effect. But, okay, going back to practicality, Dobby interacts with a lot of real-life things, lamps, mm. tables, and, like, headbutts them. And, and they really go out of their way to actually show genuine, proper, solid objects moving when they come into contact with a CGI creation. So Dobby feels far more hefty and like he's actually there and actually real, and he feels like he's got some weight to him, albeit relatively slight house-elf weight, but he feels like he has weight nonetheless. Dobby was something of a shock for me because whereas like most of the yeah the first film is exactly how I imagined it Mo- almost everything in the second film is exactly how I imagined it I don't know why but I always I could never picture Dobby when I read the books mm. all of the books were read by my mum out loud to me and my sister Oh god how old are you how old would you have been at the time uh, at the time, I was the same age of ha- as Harry. When they first came out, I was the same age as Harry. Oh, Lord, you were um, the perfect age. I friggin' loved it. It was just the most amazing books I've ever had. And my mum was just... A f- I know this it makes me sound like a mummy's boy, but my no, mum was a fantastic narrator. She was brilliant. She like When she was narrating the, um, the, the Quidditch matches, she'd be like, she'd, she'd pause at the right point, you know, Harry reached out. And had the snitch in his hand. And I remember actually jumping off the couch going, yes! God bless your mum. Yeah. And it was, it was brilliant. And we kept that tradition going until the very end of the book because it was something that we experienced as a family. Mm. And maybe it was something about the way that mum read it out, but I couldn't quite picture Dobby. The way I pictured him was he reminded me, the way that mum read him, he reminded me of, have you seen The Rescuers Down Under? Yep. 
mm-hmm. the little lizard, Frank the little wiz- uh, lizard, yep. that doesn't want to be turned into a purse. That's how I picture... How did Frank talk? I don't want to go as a purse! <gasps> please, please, don't let him do it. Don't worry, we're going to get out of here. We are? Yeah, if we all put our heads together, I'm sure we'll think of something. No, don't make them turn me into a post. No, you can't do this to me. No, it's like kind of a high-pitched and a bit whiny. And I don't know, that's just, that's how I pictured Dobby. So I had no idea what to expect. And whenever I look at Dobby, to me, it's it's quite a grotesque figure. It's basically like a shrimp. He looks more like the Doctor when the Doctor is made 900 years old at the end of Series 3. That's what Dobby looks like in the film. And I can't quite get on with it. I have to admit, the voice I, I wasn't overly keen on. I, the way he looked was all right, although I thought that the whole, you know, mucky pillowcase mm. thing, again, didn't quite sit right. But I had no problem with the with the look of him, but his voice never sounded right to me. Well, if you compare, his, sound- voice, if you compare his voice in this one to Deathly Hallows when he comes back, it's much more strained, isn't it? It's like the actor's having trouble putting on the voice. Mm. Or it, having to whisper under duress. Yeah. It feels much more... He seems to be much more into it by film seven. Well, being a free elf for five years will do that to you. Well, yes, this is true. As we've said last week, grip hook changed significantly as well. Mm, that is true. Uh, Sharon, do you remember when I actually read to you the Chamber of Secrets, I gave Dobby kind of a voice like this. Mm. And it, it, that as may it be turned why. Out, <laughs> as it turned out, it was kind of a, a bastardization of Jar Jar Binks, but as it turned out, Gollum sounded very much like that anyway. Dobby seemed like much more of a person and less of a sort of a cartoon character when I finally saw him, so I actually was quite impressed. Mm. Uh, I, I was just like hugely more impressed by Gollum a couple of weeks later. However, when Dobby comes back at, in uh, Film 7, we'll talk about that in Podcast 7, that slayed me. When they, what they actually do with him. We'll talk about that in, in Film 7. But, uh, yeah, he, he's suddenly so much more real there. Mm. Uh, another additional scene they put for, the, uh, for this movie, when they fly off in the Ford Anglia, the hanging out of the car in front of the Hogwarts Express. Mm. That's just a bit of extra Hollywood garnish. Entertained me the first time because I was much younger. I mean, they just sort of added it in there to jazz it up. The, the whole stealing the car thing is mental. Looking back on it, there's no reason these kids should go, well, you know, we probably aren't going to be allowed into Hogwarts, let's steal a car and drive there ourselves. Put that in context of real kids going off to boarding school. That would never happen. Their parents are literally on the sunrise. other side of the wall. They yeah, I could never work out. Minutes, you know? Ron, Ron does say something about if we can't get through, maybe mum and dad can't get back. What in the world would make him leap to that conclusion? When has that ever happened before? Well, that I everybody mean, got stuck on the platform? Yeah. I can understand if maybe they thought, oh, oh crap, you know, this has all been sealed off and, and you know, they're not going to. But, you know, wait, 
five minutes, they're going to notice you're not there. They're going to turn back around and come back through. It Literally, they would have had to have this thought and then immediately bolt it off for the car. It's I could understand Ron deciding this on his own and then without any steady hand of intelligence to actually guide him doing something that dumb. But Harry's not thick. <laughs> Harry would go, you know what? Fairly certain we might get in trouble for this one. How does it go in the book? Because I remember it being a bit more convincing that they need to catch the train. No, it's pretty much... It's pretty much the same. Yes, that, that one they didn't mess with very much. It's pretty much the same in the book as it is in the movie. It's just the rationalisation of 12-year-old boys. But it, it seems... It would almost make Mr. more Shrey, sense... right? Steal a car. It would almost make more sense if Ron went, oh, we'd probably... Mm, better go take the car. Like, he's been dying just dying to take that car off on a spin like just driving it the other day was awesome he just needs more that at least you'd be like okay that's just all the excuse Ron needed but they rationalise it as this is our only choice (laughs) so I I don't know like I said I've been a 12 year old boy I've done stupid stupid things probably not anything that stupid but uh, then when they get to Hogwarts there's that bit with Snape and Sharon we had to rewind this today while you pointed to Snape's eyes and said look where he's looking look where he's looking do you want to go into this one yeah because <laughs> you didn't believe me which which I found really strange we were both looking at the it's same so thing it's so slight what happened and I, I'm like he's blatantly looking that way and Alex thought he was blatantly looking the other way so that was what weird. is he expressing the tirade that he launches into when you look very closely at um, Snape's face throughout that scene most of his vitriol is actually directed at Ron when he's like rip roaring he is looking in Ron's direction and his eyes flick to Harry and his face changes ever so slightly and it's almost like I mean he can't do it obviously say to Ron how dare you put him in this danger but he that almost seems to be what he wants to say almost looking for an excuse to uh, expel them to get Harry out of the school and get him back to somewhere where he's safe again without the reveal of, of where Snape's um, motivations end up going there's no way you'd see that in, in looking at that scene the first time and I certainly never have until you know the last time I saw it Joe Rowling actually took Alan Rickman aside and told him from the first film what Snape's deal was. And only Alan Rickman knew for all of these films. Wow. Even his directors did not know. So they could have been trying to get something out of him in the performance, and he was going a completely different way, because he knew, same as only Snape knew, exactly where his allegiances lay. That's That's brilliant. That is interesting because I can... How many books would have been out by the time this one came out? Four. Four? Okay. So they still hadn't gone into the whole... I mean, I can remember... My sister still has on her bedroom door a sticker that she got when she pre-ordered the last book from... I think it was Barnes & Noble. might have been Borders. That it says, you know, Snape is loyal. Because you could get either one. Because at that point, you didn't know. (laughs) That's That's funny. <laughs> That's amazing. I did. I did not know that, and that is absolutely fantastic. And that she didn't, didn't tell Steve. She didn't tell Steve Clovis, the writer. She. She basically he would say, "Can I leave this bit in?" And she'd go, 
Yes. In fact, it's kind of important that you do, if you know what I mean. And he'd be infuriated because he wouldn't know what she was planning. He'd just have to sort of work around it. He was apparently very good at guessing eventually by uh, the, the fact that she sort of made sure that certain things had to be maintained throughout. That there is the single most thing that I loved about the Harry Potter series is that Joe Rowling knew what was going to happen, knew exactly how it was going to happen, and teased it all the way through. Mm-hmm. Every time a new book would come out, I would read all of the pre- preceding books. The most I did, I think it was um, before the last book out came out, I read all six books in about two weeks. I had nothing to do those two weeks. I'd just finished uni. I'd, um, I, read, I read them in about two weeks. And... Um, and every single time I went back and read the preceding books before the new book came out, I noticed new things that I hadn't noticed before. Simple things like the very first chapter of um, of the Philosopher's Stone, references to Mundungus Fletcher and Arabella Fig, characters that would be involved in the storyline later on. The yes. fact that I borrowed, you know, was it Hagrid borrows the bike off Sirius Black? Young Sirius Black, yeah. Young Sirius Black. It's like, there's so many, and the fact that that carried over into the films, if, you know, mm-hmm. the, with the Alan Rickman thing, I cannot help but admire and envy her for that, that kind of level of kind of vision of where her story was going. I love it's- that. The, the Snape story makes it like watching The Sixth Sense again. When you watch back on these uh, these, th- these films and you know now where Snape is at, yeah. it completely changes your understanding. There's a reason why a lot of people sort of go, oh, it's not as good as the book, oh, they cut this bit out. Da, 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 da. The one thing so many people tend to overlook is how on hand Joe was the whole way through, how every single little change was run by her for approval. Mm. Nothing came to the screen without her going, actually, yeah, go for that. She didn't, most of it, the, the new stuff was come up with completely outside of her, but she had to pretty much approve of everything because they had to be very careful. If their films contradicted her books, they got themselves a major paradox and the universe would explode. <laughs> God, right, that's the worst scenario. scenario. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe only a smaller incident limited to only our own galaxy. Another piece of fantastic casting, I thought, was Mark Williams as Mr. Weasley. This was the first time we saw Mr. Weasley. We obviously, we met Julie Waters as Mr. Weasley, and Julie Waters is brilliant in whatever she does, but she's particularly good as Mrs. Weasley. I I hadn't pictured her as Mrs. Weasley when I read the books, but now I can't help but do so. Mark Williams was just fantastic as the you know the senior Weasley man. Just the the moment where he comes home and the little kind of clueless, ex, almost like excited big kid that he is. What's it like, you know, these two took out your flying car. Did they really? How'd it go? How'd it run? Like, like, mm-hmm. You just, you really, you love him. You You want to spend more time with him. He's the sort of your friend's dad that you really get on with really well. I mean, everyone, or, or your own dad that, you know, everyone loves kind of that playful father figure. I mean, like my, my dad, my dad obviously um, has his moments where he can be quite strict, but he's also got this really playful side to him as well. And Mark Williams as Mr. Weasley's is quite like that. He's kind of that friendly, playful father figure that, you know, just wants to be one of the boys, etc. And he's just, he's just absolutely brilliant. Obviously, towards the end, as the films get more and more serious, he becomes a much more serious character. So it's great to come back and see this the first time we see him and see him in his element where, you know, life is good. He's got 
this muggle artifacts job, which he absolutely loves. He's got a great family that hasn't suffered any kind of major, um, major losses at all. You know, he hasn't been attacked by snakes. He hasn't been estranged from his eldest son. It's fantastic to see this character fully fledged, albeit briefly in this film. Hang on, was Percy his eldest son? Yes. No, oh, Bill's the eldest son. Bill's oh, son. sorry. Bill, Bill and Charlie. Just Bill and Charlie. I, 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 yeah. I, I was going to say. Oh, yeah, eldest, no, you're eldest, right. Charlie's the eldest, isn't he? Eldest son, eldest son that is actually still at home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to say, until I thought about Percy, there isn't a single mean-spirited bone in the entire Weasley family due to the parents and their obvious, loving, warm nature. Mm. And, and the even despite the fact that they have got more kids than they can really manage, it doesn't seem like any of them have really gone, you know, really without the love that they need. That Even though Ron has, he's got the middle child syndrome, even though he's at the second bottom to the pile. I can't, uh, I'm sure that during the later movies we'll talk about Molly Weasley, but I can't, I can't wait about that because Molly Weasley is my mother. Like that, <laughs> seriously, it was hilarious when my sister and I went to see the final movie. We went to the cinema. We like, we're looking at each other like, that's mom. <laughs> <laughs> Not my daughter, you bitch! Exactly. That Best line in the saga. My mother. That is my mother <laughs> on screen. They are your typical kind of children's TV, children's films, Disney films. Like, there's always a family that has doesn't have great wealth, doesn't have um, a particularly good life by luxurious standards, but are happy in themselves. They're your. T- they're a Christmas card. They're the family. Brady's. They're the Bradys. They, oh, they're not. They, they have. They're a lot more realistic than the Bradys. I'm <laughs> joking, but, but no. Actually, um, the, the thing about the number of kids, and I think I said this the other day. If Ginny had been a boy, she'd be a seventh son. Mm. Ooh, which is obviously very quite a magical magically special. Fred, you next. He's not Fred. I am. Honestly, woman, you call yourself our mother. Oh, I'm sorry, George. I just think it's so cool that Joe has Mrs. Weasley and really kind of like pays homage to this incredible mother figure and how how key her role is in keeping that family together, to her taking care of Harry and, you know, the whole of Dumbledore's army, really. Thank goodness you two are all right. Apart from the three main characters, of course, um, um, Harry and Ron and Hermione, Mrs. Weasley is the greatest force for good. I think in it. She's the mother of that world. And I think that is a very female. What impressed me with Julie was you always had the sense, I felt, that this wasn't just this warm and cosy 1950s housewife pottering around her kitchen. There was some real steel in there. Now, you could say there would have to be steel in the woman who raised Fred and George, otherwise you would go start sewing mad. However, it was totally plausible for me when she stepped forward in the Great Hall and thought, right, you bitch, you're getting yours. And you thought, yeah, she is about to get hers. <laughs> Bellatrix messed with the wrong woman. Not my daughter, you bitch. <laughs> it comes from her womb, that, that feeling of defence, defending her child. She's already lost one. So it's the mother, you know, the lion, the, the female lion or tiger defending her babies, you know. So it's unstoppable, which is wonderful. Because that's good, because it's a mother really going for yeah, yeah. which is great. I doubt if that probably would have taken place had it been a man writing it. That, in the film at least, was a direct reference to Aliens written by James Cameron. <laughs> I really enjoyed killing 
Bellatrix, and I really enjoyed having it be Molly that did it. And of course, you also have two very different kinds of female energy. They're pitted against each other. You have Molly, who will mother the whole world if she can, and you have Bellatrix, whose idea of love is very perverse and twisted, and that was satisfying. But there was something else I wanted to do with the way that Bellatrix ended. And this was very important to me. Very early on in writing the series, I remember a female journalist saying to me that Mrs. Weasley said, well, you know, she's just a mother. And I was absolutely incensed by that comment. Now, I, I consider myself to be a feminist. And I'd always wanted to show that just because a woman has made a choice, a free choice, to say, well, I'm going to raise my family and that's going to be my choice. I may go back to a career, I may have a career part-time, but that's my choice. Doesn't mean that that's all she can do. And as, as we proved there in that little battle, Molly Weasley comes out and proves herself the equal of any warrior on that battlefield. Let's have a quick time out and talk about John Williams' score, because I know that you quite like John Williams, James. I do, and i tell you what, this is possibly, when I watched, when I watched it again, um, in preparation for this podcast, this is possibly the only John Williams' score that disappoints me. Just this one, or all three of the films that he scored? No, I, I loved the first score, I've got the first score. <laughs> I loved the third score, because it wasn't until I most recently watched um, Azkaban that I, I realised it was his. I mm. thought he only did the first two... And then three onwards, they found it out to other people. Mm. Um, but I found that the three is actually his as well. And again, there's some really nice kind of themes to that. Um, there's a lot more risks taken in the third one, a yeah. lot more interesting and un unusual timpani in I there. I actually had it in my mind that he'd scored more than the first three. No, no, no. Fourth one, I believe, was Patrick Doyle. Fifth one, Nicholas Hooper. He also did the sixth one. And the seventh and eighth were Alexander Desplat. But they do use a lot of his themes and strains and things. Well, yeah, sure. they do. Not as Hedwig's theme is the dun 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 dun, and that's the one theme that is present throughout all late movies. Not as often as I would have expected slash hoped. But and initially, I was almost disappointed that they didn't keep John Williams all the way through the film. But John Williams, his strength lies in the kind of family blockbusters where everything turns out all right even things like jurassic park you mm. know there's gonna be a nice plinky plonky everyone's everyone's safe theme at the end mm. whereas the the harry potter book certainly from three onwards it, it really isn't like that so it isn't quite suited to his style so i wasn't I, I could i could make my peace with that if you listen to patrick doyle's score for goblet all in one go just without the movie it's really effective i want to i thought four four i, is I recommend all of them i've got i mean i've got i've got one i've got six um i need to track down three and four i will say have you got five I don't know. Five will require some rejigging because they've done that thing where they put it all in a completely in different order. order. Yeah. It oh, no. starts with That's the fireworks music. And then like after track three, it's like, oh, here's the intro to the film. It's, what? <laughs> John Williams' score for this one, I honestly think is his most disappointing for me because it is literally copied and pasted from... The, as much as the filmmakers have played it safe, John Williams has played it safe, which is Very. inexcusable. Just well, entire cues. A score in the last one, so you can include the first one in this as well. Okay, the first one I absolutely love, and it is—it's not quite John Williams's typical thing. If you—if someone tells you this John Williams and you listen to it, it's like, ah, oh, yes, I can hear the John Williams kind of quality to it. But it's—it's it's still slightly different from anything he's done before. Certainly, there's a lot more kind of um, 
triangles and like what's the it's not quite his usual sort of thing but very good certainly the the, um, the wondrous world of Harry which mm. is um, a kind of an entire suite which he used segments of throughout various bits of the um, the scene amazing and very kind of John Williams track the uh, the music they used for things like the um, the Quidditch Max again very mm. big epic sort of John bombast Williams. bombast yes that John Williams bombast fantastic score absolutely brilliant even the creepy you know, um, creepy bits like the dun 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 it almost echoes the old um, the uh, the Raids of the Lost Ark the, the Ark theme dun, dun, dun. Like, oh, speaking of Raiders, um, uh, this is Gildory Lockhart's theme. I know where that's going from. It's in. It's in Last Crusade. It is in Last Crusade! Dun, 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 dun. Tickets, please. Tickets, please. Well Ask. done, James. Oh, come on, it's John Williams. I was no, always ticket. Right. I was always going to So well done. Okay, and there's also um, the Quidditch match when Harry is being chased by Rogue Bludger, and it goes... It's the it's the speeder chase from episode two. Stealth yes. episode two. Attack of the it is. I, I want to call it lazy. It is exceedingly but... lazy. It's like because that is again that, that's almost copy pasted. But it's the fact that he completely lifted. Um, entire cue. So, like I said, the dun dun dun. That's the Philosopher's Stone theme. He just replaced that for anything that was creepy, like the diary. Um, yeah. Even like things like the music when in the first film where Harry goes into the library uh, under the invisibility cloak, and there's kind of this hollow, kind of whistling, windy sort of music. Yep. That again is copy pasted again when he's when he's in the book and he's going around the castle. It's it's just cue for cue, exactly the same. The only new theme. As far There's as I can several. tell. There's actually several. They, even, they name them on the Wikipedia The page. only one I really yeah. noticed was Fawkes' theme. Yes. Which was a, a lovely, proper, warm, caring John Williams score. And I enjoyed that. Okay, <laughs> apparently there were various new cues. Gildory Lockhart, The Chamber of Secrets, Dobby the House Elf, Moaning Myrtle, and Fawkes the Phoenix. Oh, and The Spiders. So... There's a good... There's a few. There's a few. But the Fawkes is the one that really stands out. And the trouble is, there's so much that's copy and pasted that... Yeah. It, it doesn't feel fresh or new. It does. It, it, it attributes to the film feeling very much like the same as the first yeah. one. And the trouble is, it almost it, it devalues for me. Like, so one of my favourite tracks on the first soundtrack is "Leaving Hogwarts." That final track where it oh, builds yeah. up and it leaves the and you know it's the train leaving the station, mm-hmm. and it builds up and it's just incredible. And yeah. I can hear it in my head right now. Which, by the way, is how the eighth film ends as well. Exactly. And the fact that that was the end of the first and eighth film, I loved that. That's pure John Williams, pure 
just the best way to use movie scores. And then the fact that it's in this one, just copy and pasted at the end when they're all hugging Hagrid and clapping. It was like, well, that kind of taints that track now for me. Oh, come on. Not enough, not enough, but it just... It disappoints me. I am disappointed. Okay. On that Hagrid-related note, we well, can want, now talk about... I want about, to talk about Hagrid. Let us talk about Hagrid. <laughs> Leah, you've been... you've but, And Sharon, you've both been very quiet and very patient listening to us men wax on about scores. So, Leah, do you want to start on Hagrid? I really do. I, I'm i going to skip right to the end, um, because there's this is probably the thing that bothers me the most. And this is, this is not a difference between the film and the book, because they both handle it in pretty much the same way, and it bothers me in both of them. Hagrid goes to Azkaban. Why does nobody seem to care? It's just like, you know, Dumbledore kind of goes, oh, well, you know, I have complete faith in Hagrid, and I I think that everything is fine. Fudge goes, no, he's going to Azkaban. Hagrid's like, yeah, well, all right, fine. And he just goes off to Azkaban, comes back in the end. Nobody, I mean, this is a horrible place that they have sent him to. This is not like Happy Fun Time Land. This is Hagrid going to a place with Dementors and all kinds of other horrible things going on. It's nobody, for lunatic murderers and war criminals. Nobody I mean, really seems to care. Whatever happened to innocent until proven guilty? They come in and say, well, you know, you did some bad things in the past, so we're just going to lock you up here until something better comes along. And only, everybody accepts it. It's only okay. a big spider is not a crime. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, that really, really bothers me. And it's, and it's, it's the, the same fact in the that book he comes, and the movie. It's the fact that he comes back really chirpy. He's like, sorry, I'm late. Some bloody bird named Errol developed. It's like, yes, sorry, hey, I was being tortured see. in this horrible yeah. wizard prison well, we for see, a couple we of extra We see the hours. next film. We see the next film with Gary Oldman. We see what Azkaban can do exactly. to him. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Sharon, you have any clue as to why Hagrid might have been not affected? Because he knows he's innocent. The thing with Azkaban, and this, this is something that I find really intriguing, and Alex said something earlier about, you know, do they have a minimum security prison <laughs> in the wizarding world, or is it it's, it's Azkaban? Azkaban or nothing. You committed um, credit card fraud. Do Azkaban. <laughs> I honestly have to say, I think it is Azkaban or nothing. I think it, it's it's the kind of place that you could feasibly even just use as a holding cell for somebody that you're not quite sure about, but you know, because the if whole you find point him in of a it, fetal position, sobbing and screaming. <laughs> in the morning, then you know he cool. did it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, did something. But this is the thing. It, the point of it is that it locks you in with your own guilt, and this is why um, Bellatrix goes completely insane in there um, and it is it is commented on that um, the only reason that Sirius could be in there for so long and not go crazy is because he knows he's innocent now the first time that um, this all went down and, and um, Hagrid got um, expelled and, and was told he was never allowed to use magic again etc although he he hadn't. Um, he wasn't responsible for uh, Myrtle's death. He felt responsible initially, and the kind of person that Hagrid is, I strongly suspect that he would have um, sort of confessed to the fact that yes, he had this spider, and, and yes, he let it out, and thought that he was responsible. And once he'd said that, might have felt that when he realised the truth, he couldn't go back on what he'd already said. But this time round, he knows he didn't do anything wrong. Um, so I, I actually think that, yeah, he could go to Azkaban and just be sat there thinking, well, you know, they'll figure it out eventually and not have this whole horrible depression, um, the Dementor uh, mind-stripping thing going on because he knows he's innocent. However, if Harry went to Azkaban, 
he'd be a wreck in, in minutes. He'd, they'd probably take his goddamn soul out. The Dementors feast on him in the third one. Uh, so, I mean, all Hagrid has to have done is to witness his friend's deaths, and it's pretty likely that he would have done, considering what, what Voldemort did. Hmm. Hmm. Bit of a grey area there. I shall check up on it. It is a tricky one, yes. Uh, just, but just either really way, bothers me that he, that he seems quite chirpy when he comes out. So maybe he was okay. Because I mean, even even when even Dumbledore says something about innocent until proven guilty, I, I think he says it more than once. But mm. everybody just seems to be okay with Hagrid being dragged off to be locked up until somebody might figure out that there's a better solution to this whole thing. But there is a particularly nice moment at the end of this, which I hadn't actually realised until Sharon mentioned it today. Yeah, it, he's never really been up to the castle before um, that, that we've seen. Um, he lives outside because this whole thing happened and, and he wasn't allowed to be part of the, the wizarding world, as it were. He, you know, he had his wand broken and all the rest of it. Um, and this is this is sort of his moment of exoneration. He gets to come into the Great Hall, and then from three onwards, he's sitting at the teacher's table, which he never has done before. Um, and I think that's because Alex was saying that it seems a little odd that they suddenly have this great big standing ovation for Hagrid, and and you know all he's really done is come back. But it's it's sort of welcoming him back into the wizarding fold mm. um, which I actually I, I think is really nice I like the way Hagrid's character develops in this because he was only very lightly touched on in the, the first one well, they all were in the first one because as I said minimal characterization. Um, but I, I do like what gets revealed and what that tells us about um, Hagrid and how he sees his place in this whole thing because um. that's the thing he doesn't really after this he doesn't really grow He's just, he's a lovely, kindly half-giant, and he's naive, and he's very trusting. It, most, a lot of the time it's misplaced trust in giant, hairy, mad things that will kill anyone else but him. I think the thing is, as, as, much, as, as much as minimal characterization in the first film, that's all you need to understand Hagrid. He doesn't have a complex side plot like Snape. He doesn't have, you know, conflicting, you know, um, emotions like Malfoy by the end of the series. He's very much your friendly best mate, loves everyone that's good, bit, you know, avoids everyone that's bad, loves his mad and hairy creatures. And, you know, you, you understand just from the scenes where, like, um, where Norbert is born in the first film, you, that, that there tells you everything you need to know about Hagrid. Mm. He's and almost got the mind of a child, actually. He is, yeah. almost, almost. And I think by the time the films have come out, like Hagrid in the books, although he's not, like I say, he's not, although he's not like the strongest character, i.e. he hasn't got the most kind of complex psyche, he's the most consistent character throughout the entire series of the books. So by the time the films came out, certainly, you know, and I can only approach this from someone that read the books before the films, you... You know Hagrid, you understand Hagrid, and Hagrid, again, Robbie Coltrane, fantastic casting, exactly how I pictured Hagrid. Mm. It's comfortable because you just, you know exactly what to expect with Hagrid, you know exactly where you stand, so he doesn't need exploring in the films because he is what he needs to be, and he is what everyone expects and was waiting for. Sharon, do you remember the one difference between the way I read Hagrid and the way he turned out in the film? Because we knew Robbie Coltrane was cast as him. You read him with a Scottish accent. I did. Really? From Devon. And it was like, oh, I guess I'll get used to him being from Devon now. Mum mum read him as um, Cockney. For some reason, Mum read him as Cockney, and he's oh, I go love a duck, Harry. Like, Harry, what you doing? Like, but, but that didn't bother me too much. 
Hagrid is um, a point of consistency for Harry, um, which I think, particularly when he's a child, is very, very important because he's he's not had um, somebody that he can love and trust and rely on completely mm. ever that he can remember. Um, and although Hagrid is not... Um, and we've discussed this, the, the number of father figures that come into Harry's life to, to compensate for the fact that he's lost James. Um, I don't think I would call Hagrid a father figure, but he is very much a big brother figure. He knows mm. he can always rely on Hagrid. Hagrid will always be on his side regardless. He doesn't have to, to uh, fathom out his motives like he does with Snape. He doesn't have to question whether or not he can trust him to have his best interests at heart like he does to an extent with Dumbledore. He, there is no um, uh, to and fro in about whether or not Hagrid will come through for him. And when the, when the chips are down and everything else has fallen apart, where does he go? He goes to Hagrid's house. That's his fallback. When he needs to think about things and work out what to do next, he goes to Hagrid's house. And I think that as that uh, that single consistent point of, of contact that's really really important for a child cast into this incredibly strange world um, and it's I, I think it's quite lovely I assume that we're going to talk about the spiders at a later point in time so I'll save that um, actually do you want to talk about spiders now whole lot to say about the spiders, except that I agree with Ron, and that scene in the movie makes me exceptionally uncomfortable. I don't like spiders. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, uh, Tony's wife, Liz, also terrified of spiders, as am I. So during that scene in the film, both she and I were going, yeah, I feel like they're on me. I have an, uh, a, an old roommate who does not only not like spiders, she gets extremely violent about spiders, like will attack them with bleach type of does not like spiders. <laughs> so, um, yeah, she <laughs> watching that, she's also a very, very big Harry Potter fan, so uh, watching that scene with her is uh, kind of entertaining. <laughs> a friend of mine um, is absolutely fine with spiders, but hates big movie spiders whenever they make a giant spider. So he's, he's fine normally, but Aragog and Shelob from Lord of the Rings freak the living daylights out of him. See, I'm kind of the opposite. Like, I can deal with a big spider. The thing that bothers me about little spiders is that you never know where they're going to be. <laughs> in the football helmet. He'll be in the football helmet! <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> Gilderoy Lockhart. I love him. He's brilliant. Can I, you can I tell say you... how much I love Kenneth Branagh? Like, <laughs> so much. You can tell that Kenneth Branagh is having so much fun with that part. Mm. He's loving it, isn't he? He, he was a brilliant casting choice for that. I think yes. I think they nailed it with him. They couldn't have got any. I, I honestly don't know who I think I pictured. The only other person I could imagine as Gilderoy Lockhart is Rick Mayle in a kind of a Lord Flashheart kind of style. But even then, that would that would have been too over the top than what Kenneth Branagh did. In fact, yeah, Gilderoy Lockhart's probably one of the only teachers at uh, Hogwarts who survived, but isn't in that final battle apart from uh, Madame Hooch, who for mm. some reason, Zoe Wanamaker didn't turn up for that last one. Zoe Wanamaker didn't turn up in any of them after the first one, did she? Yep, nope, that was all. Which was weird, because, hmm. you, know, you know, relatively good casting, I thought she was all right. If they'd have put her more in more Harry Potter films, she'd have made less terrible My Family episodes. Yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, Gilderoy Lockhart. Um, it's just extremely well-delivered lines. They're, my favorite is, celebrity is as celebrity does. Remember that, Harry. It's like, my, what does my, that even mean my, on my any level? My favorite is still when he introduced himself to the class. Allow me to introduce you to your new defense against the dark arts teacher. Me. And then just goes through all these kind of accolades. And it's like, but I didn't, you know... Five-time winner the... of Witch Weekly's Most Winning Smile that's Award. The one. But I didn't scare away the Bantam Banshee by smiling at her. <laughs> I used a special gun. Um, into, I love the fact that there's a portrait of himself painting a portrait of himself behind Yes, this. yes. Well, Genius. That's awesome. Absolutely. Um, Do they ever actually go into how... Uh, how Lockhart got all of his... They don't in the film. They mention it briefly. They do mention it briefly. Like he they, he's been obliviating down, people and on. claiming... Yeah, no, I mean, they, they go into pretty pretty descriptive detail in the book. I just couldn't remember which is... You know, in, in, the, in the film, it's literally a case of... Um, if um, they knew that it wasn't really... That was it, yeah. If they, if, you know, if, they, if they knew that I hadn't done you know, all these things, I'd never been able to sell another book. Use your head. People, you know... I, only half the amount of people would have bought my books if they hadn't thought I'd actually done them, these mm. things, and stuff like that. They, it's a very brief exchange in the office, but it works. Interestingly enough, Obliviate and Gilderoy himself take on a far darker tone um, just at the very end when they found they're just outside the Chamber of Secrets, mm. and he's going to use it on the boys and allow Ginny to die just so he can save his own skin. Yeah. That is yes. low. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not he, evil, but it's the most cowardly form of pathetic. I don't know. You could almost you could almost go with evil just because he makes a point out of saying, you know, that Jim is going to die. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. sister, for Christ's sake. It's Harry's future wife and the mother of his children. Is, is the kind of deranged... Like, was it the fact that the camera's on a wonky angle and the fact that his his voice takes quite a sinister low tone. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's it's like you can see how... As much as it's cowardly, it's also desperate to maintain this lifestyle he's kind of crafted for himself. Yeah, yeah. and what's interesting about that is that you have, when, when Quirrell's doing his, his crazy mad bit, you know that's Voldemort making him act like that. Mm. Nobody's making Lockhart act like that's that. Just that's just him. Paid. Yeah. Well, there's also, I don't think that in the book, unless I have just forgotten this, but I don't believe that in the book Ron, Ron picks up a rock and bashes him over the head <laughs> with it, which I thought was pretty I mean, he's bleeding. I don't know how to stop the blood. <laughs> so, yeah, there's that. And the other side is the flip side. I don't think Obliviate's been mentioned in the films between then and the beginning of film seven when Hermione uses it on her own parents yeah. in a really heartbreaking moment, mm. which I think was never actually directly in the book. No, she just she mentions that she wiped her memory of her parents in the book but she didn't actually you didn't actually see it and in the film it's so well done yeah mm. it so. seems like a much more subtle version of Obliviate than um, than Lockhart uses though because the way he talks about it it, it is literally just it mushes the brain of whoever mm. he's cast it on um, well, you see it too when it backfires on him Exactly. He just turns into this sort of drooling wreck. Whereas when Hermione does it, it's almost like she's surgically removing very specific memories. And obviously that's. But I think I think in the book he says he does that when he when he interviews the people about how they defeat all these monsters. He does. He surgically removes just their encounter with the monster and his interview with them. Mm. So well, I, I don't think, think I he's think, a militia. Uh, he doesn't go around turning people's brains to mush. It's just in that situation, and because Ron's wand is so broken, 
Yeah. Also, and I think Hermione is a better, uh, a much yeah. better wizard than, <laughs> than Lockhart is. To be really Which honest. brings me to one of my other comments. I don't buy that Hermione would be taken in by his smarm, and she totally is. If you see, <laughs> when he comes in, she's sat there, you know, Next to chin Bowl, in hand. Simpering. Yeah, exactly, simpering. Well, and true, I'm, but she's she 12. Me that kind of I mean, well, she's supposed to be 12. Um she, I don't know. I, I think I think I'm all right with her having a little bit of hero worship, just because he, you know, is supposed to have done all of these wonderful things. And this, it's this not is only that he's only... pretty; it's that you know she she has respect for what he has supposed. Yeah, well, done. I did. I did kind of explain it by explain it away to myself by saying by thinking that. Um, when when you read a lot, you do have a tendency to kind of believe everything you read at, at that young age, where you haven't yet learned to discern what's likely to be true and what's and likely. Particularly with Hermione, who places her faith entirely in books. Exactly. You know, like books are her world. So yeah, she books never betray her, etc. I thought, yeah, I can kind of forgive it. I'm like Leah, I can forgive forgive her this one because she spends the rest of the series being very, very perspe- perceptive about all other relationships around, like, you know, when the Vila come in in the fourth one, she's the one kind of talking them out of it. Even in, like, in the film, which I don't think, you know, I think it's the sixth one, yeah, in the sixth one, in the sixth film, which wasn't in the book, she kind of, you know, snaps Harry out of it when he thinks that girls fancy him. It's like, you know, it's just because you're the chosen one. She's kind of keeping chosen. everyone's heads out of the clouds. So I, don't, mm, I didn't mind yeah. letting her have this one time when she's got her heads in the, head in the clouds. The one person she has no ability to fathom, really, ironically, is Ron. She, I mean, he's yes. a very simple person, and she keeps expecting something that he can't or isn't giving her for a long, long, long time. And she even it says, just because you've got the emotional range of a teaspoon later on, and <laughs> if she'd just taken that into account and gone, Ron is very simple, just tell him you like him, he'll go, oh. <laughs> that, yeah. I, I thought that was kind of uh, one of the things that I, I started to to kind of like how they handled in this movie because right at the end mm. you know when she comes out of the hospital wing and she you know she's no longer petrified she runs up and she hugs Harry like it's no big thing and then she turns to Ron and they shake hands because they mm. don't know what else to do tell it boy I just I thought that was cute I, I liked that okay we're jumping ahead so I yes. should go back a bit um, now interesting the book timelines do you know what year Harry was supposed to be born in the book uh, well, this book took place in 92, I'm sorry, 92. Yes. 92 because, through 3. Yes, because the, uh, because the 500th anniversary of Sir Nicholas's death was 1492. I did catch nice. that. Well done. Uh, yeah, so, so that means... In this book, that would mean he was born in 1980. Yep. He was born like two weeks before me. Huh. Huh. End of July versus middle of August. Sharon mentioned uh, last week that she, she was uh, angry about the fact that they just sort of jump ahead and that makes him a Virgo in, in, a, in a weird way. But I was the, kidding, mostly. But, no, but seriously, um, the, the prophecy itself actually says a child born at the end of July, and that refers to either Harry or Neville. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, the book timeline is actually uh, takes but the seven years take place between 1991 and 1998, which interestingly means there couldn't have been a Millennium Bridge to mess up in 1996. <laughs> a fine point. Uh, but the movies most definitely take place between 2001 and 2008, which means there'd definitely be a Millennium Bridge at that point. But, yeah, that's the, that's the only major time difference between them. It is just set ten years later. Mm. 
Sharon, you mentioned something. Well, okay, one thing that bugs me, and this is just a little thing. When they get Colin Creevy in the medical wing and he's petrified, Dumbledore goes, oh, we may have caught something on the camera, flips the back of the camera open, and the film goes poof and explodes. Even if it had just been regular film and not special wizard film, he'd just have buggered all the photos. In the book, it seems like he has an idea of what's going to happen before he actually flips the back of the camera open. Consider taking it to a dark room first, well, <laughs> just in case. I'm just saying, it seems like he has he's a little more clued in in the book. In the movie, that, it seems like he just kind of goes, oh, let's look at the pictures and flips open the back of the camera, not exactly realizing um, what's going to happen when you flip open the back of the camera. Which leads me to another thing. Children are being petrified left, right, and center. People, animals, ghosts. They get to the point where they're about to close the school with no investigation. No auras come in. There are no wizard versions of forensics. No one ties it up. Only Harry ties up the mirror, the camera, the reflections in the water. Harry's the closest they've got to forensics. And he's 12. (laughs) Gather round! Gather round! Can everybody see me? Can you all hear me? Excellent. In light of the dark events of recent weeks, Professor Dumbledore has granted me permission to start this little dueling club to train you all up in case you ever need to defend yourselves, as I myself have done on countless occasions. For full details, see my published works. Let's have a volunteer pair. Um, Potter, Weasley, how about you? Weasley's wand causes devastation with the simplest spells. We'll be sending Potter to the hospital wing in a matchbox. Might I suggest someone from my own house? Malfoy, perhaps? Wands at the ready. Scared Potter. You wish. You might, I don't know whether you want to move this or whether you want to talk about it later or not, but I think we kind of skipped over the fact that they never actually talk about Filch being a squib. They don't, do they? No, they do skip that. There it's, is a, it's in a, a reference scene, in the Middle East. There's a little bit of a letter, but that doesn't tell you anything unless no. you've read the book. So it doesn't even really, I mean, it, it, it makes sense on an accidental level, but it, it never really, you don't get the extra thing of him being targeted or of Mrs. Filch being targeted because he's a squib. Mrs. Filch. Mrs. Mrs. Norris. Norris. Mrs. That's my name. <laughs> Mrs. Norris, excuse me, he did not marry his cat in fact. Jesus. Yeah, no. But you, you never you never get that, oh, maybe Mrs. Norris has been targeted because he doesn't actually have any magical mm. ability. I, I wondered that actually, yeah. I've yeah. never really picked up on that. I always just assumed Mrs. Norris was uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. That's what yeah. I've always Well, I mean, that, that kind of turns out to be what it actually was. But it, in the book, there's a little bit of, well, because, uh, uh, you know, Harry sees kind of accidentally the uh, the magic correspondence course stuff, yes. which is actually kind of funny, you know, in the book. But then they, they just skip over that in the film. And, uh, you know, later on when they're thinking, oh, well, who's been targeted? It, and it's all it's all uh, people with um, with muggle parents and you know, except for Mrs. Norris, who is his cat. And, you know, if he's a full-blooded wizard, which there's nothing really to contradict that in the main part of the film, then there's then it does just come off as an accident. So Something that bothers me about the basilisk, a snake that size yep. going around the school, and, yep. okay, fine, the 
corridors are slightly empty so no one sees it but it doesn't break anything like those torches or anything it can yep. just it can subtly you know happily fit around those corridors without no one any without anyone being able to tell that there's been anything there how large are the pipes that they exactly been- well that too exactly how large are the pipes again forensics there'd be drag marks there'd be water there'd yes. be smears of mud where it's been crawling up through the filth all the way from the chamber of secrets that could not be hidden there's so many contrivances in this book to allow these things to take place how did and it even no fit through one the door? to chase it Question. how did it even fit through the door out of the bathroom I can buy it coming up out of the pipe that's behind all the sinks, but the door is a normal-sized door for normal-sized people. Totally. And it doesn't... There's not a large snake-shaped hole in the door. No. I say again, magic? Question magic? Mark? A wizard did it. A wizard did it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Literally, a wizard did it. So, I mean, we should now really talk about how the hows of this actually happened, the Tom Riddle and the diary. This is the first Horcrux. And from the sounds of it, unless... I'm, I'm going to do some research again. I really should have done it before the show. But this was, from the looks of it, the first ever Horcrux that Tom created. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, your theory on this, Sharon? Um, that, yeah... The the way the Horcrux um, soul splitting thing seems to work, um, and from the the comment that Slughorn makes um, when he's telling Tom about them and his horror at the notion of doing it more than once. Good Lord, um, seven. I reckon that it, the act basically divides just the soul in half. So the first Horcrux he created would have half of his soul. Um, and then when he does the second, it's half of what's left. Yeah. So as he carries on, it's getting this part is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So by the time it gets the the diary more potent. Exactly. And also that's him when he's young. Um, Mm. it's, it's the first time he's committed a murder. Well, obviously that we know of. Um, Mm -hmm. and certainly the first time he's done it with intent of doing something specifically for himself. So that is, um, the line that he crosses is so much more than almost like the acts that he commits later on, although they are very horrible and, and, you know, technically speaking, do get worse. That's the point at which he changes from being just a messed up, disturbed kid into being somebody who will go out of their way to do this in order to preserve themselves. Um, but, yeah, the, the fact that this um, this particular Horcrux is, is incredibly powerful and that if he'd been able to reform from this, he might actually have come back as Tom, as a young man in possession of all his faculties rather than the twisted, weak, pitiful thing that he ends up finally coming back as. Mm. I, the conclusion I also drew was um, when I when I read when I when I saw this film again was that I assume that this Horcrux is formed after that conversation with Jim Broadbent, uh, yeah. sorry Hor- Horace Slughorn, yeah. staying character. So I assume that this is kind of the one that he does to try it to test it out. When we're going to talk about Horcruxes, this is the One Ring. All of these Horcruxes are to be treated as the one thing. They have a soul, and into it he poured his malice and his will to dominate. The seven rings. Yeah. (laughs) Effectively, there's seven plus one extra one he didn't think about. But um, the the, the locket acts exactly the same as the one ring. It hangs around Ron's neck, and it gets heavier, and it starts to act on him, and it starts to act on Harry, and it causes tension between them. Not so much that they really want to keep it, but just it being around them poisons everything about them. And I think... I think it just really began, when I was reading the uh, eighth book, it really just began to, to wear 
on on me that the reader that it's like oh Christ destroy this thing it is just evil mm. uh, and so yeah the, the idea of the Horcrux certainly wasn't brand new in fact it is lifted wholesale from the Lord of the Rings again that's not a bad thing she does it very very well and it still feels fresh especially since they're hunting for them rather than just constantly burdened down with just the one of them if it had just been one the whole time it would yeah. have been like come on you know? again I love the fact that, again this you know this goes back to the whole the fact that there was a story planned for the entire series I love the fact that the the MacGuffin for the second book and mm. slash film which again like, like I said earlier like the first three are very much standalone adventures everything goes back to normal at the end they're just your typical children's adventures the fact that the MacGuffin from the second one actually plays into the overall plot of mm. the entire saga, I absolutely love. Just the scope of this entire series, I love it. Me too. Absolutely. It's awesome. I'm incre- incredibly jealous that she can come up with something like that. Because, yeah. you know, I write in my spare time, I'm trying to sow the seeds in, like, book one of what's going to happen in book three, and I just can't do it quite as well as she can. No one can. <laughs> That does emphasise why it is so important that they had her on board for these films. Absolutely. That they had her to say, yes, you can leave that out. It's it's there, but it's not really all that important. No, you really need that. No, please don't say that because it directly mm. contradicts something I'm changing later on. Well, it, it almost gave it gave certain things away, wasn't it? Like because when they when they did um when they did Order of the Phoenix, the film, they I, I remember the news coming out that that Joe, Joe Rowling had said they cannot cut creature out they were originally going to cut creature out of the entire film but yeah. the, she said you cannot and the, from that point on we knew that he would be significant in the books because yeah. the books hadn't mm-hmm. finished at that point oh poor creature actually i was i was talking to sharon about exactly what happened to him we'll save that one for film six <laughs> um so yeah just the exact what actually happened with tom riddle and uh Ginny. it's never exactly made plain where Ginny was getting all that blood that's a lot of blood right <laughs> on the wall. Which they do that talk is, about in the book. Um, but where's it from? It's chickens, actually. Uh, yeah, yes, Hagrid mentions that the chickens are getting killed. Uh huh. Yeah. He comes in so, with the chicken and that. says he's going to put a spell on the hen house. Thank you. That's great. That actually is a sizable uh, weight off my mind because I was like, if Ginny had cut herself that deeply to get that much blood to write on the wall, she'd be like, oh Christ, I've got to do another line here. That's something else. That's something else that actually they cut out of the movie that was in the book was they go into a fair amount of detail about how Ginny was kind of lonely and how this was her friend because every time she wrote in the in the journal or in the diary, you know, it would come back up and he was talking to her and they established this relationship. They don't really talk about that in the movie they just say oh yep she had this book and it took her over she was in a trance it wasn't her fault yeah. there's, a, there's an interview with um, with Joe that we look, we watched on the extras and um, she actually talks about how she thought of that as being like um, a, a child Ginny's age forming an internet relationship with somebody because this you're, you're spilling out your heart and soul to this person who you don't know could be a million miles away could be next door um, and you're getting something back from them but you don't know where that inf- you know you don't know where that comes from you, you can't judge what they're saying as to whether there's any credence in it, whether it's truth, whether it's lie, whatever. Um, and she thought that that, that summarised their um, their reactions and, and the way Ginny responded to that as, as being that kind of relationship, which I thought was really interesting. 
Mm. Although you never actually got to see it in the film because they never dwelled on that moment. Um, we've seen from the same principle in Lord of the Rings, depending on which person the ring is trying to appeal to, it can be extremely seductive. When it calls out to Faramir, it's actually the, the, uh, the female vocalist doing the actual voice of the ring at that point is crooning to him, beckoning to him. So I can only imagine that Tom was exceptionally charming in the diary. Mm. And and extremely positive, which makes no sense because... Voldemort, Tom, doesn't understand people. He doesn't understand how they, they work. So he should have come across as a psychopath pretty early. No, but there is how also... To yeah, and there is, there is also um, a seed of Harry in him and him in Harry. So when Tom started talking to Even Ginny... Even at that point in the diary, though... But then, if, like if you remember, like, when, when Horace Slughorn's reminiscing about what Voldemort was like, he's, you know, he, he, he touches on it in the film, and I think he goes into detail in the book, is that at the time, Tom was, you know, very charming, very kind of a good student, very kind of favoured by the teachers, he and, and yeah. really, he knew how to work yeah. people. As much as he didn't understand people, he knew how to work people. And, and he could sociopaths, get people, yes. The, the, the sociopathic element of him, um, that actually stands perfectly to reason, because it's, it's, um, a lot of it can come down to sort of this this ability to observe, and you may not know people emotionally, but you can see their reactions to things, and you he can under- learn how, what strings to pull to get those reactions. He understands in a very clinical way how this is going to work. It just doesn't yeah. quite resonate with him personally. Indeed, indeed. Mm. This is great stuff. I never thought we'd get this deep on Chamber. Okay, so any more on Tom and the Chamber and the Basilisk? Uh, that he stayed at Hogwarts over the summer and that he would have had um, weeks and weeks on his own, more or less, because although there probably would have been teachers coming in and out, they've got holidays to go on and families to go and see as well. Um, but he would have had time to explore the castle completely, time to find the chamber, um, you know, do reading into all sorts of things that, that he knows his somebody history. his age. He exactly. Really so, yeah, and for travels. somebody who's muggle-born as well, he... he has um, dug himself into this the, the magical world very very thoroughly. Half Muggleborn, he's half blood. His mother was. Yeah, magical. but when I, or okay, sorry. When I say Muggleborn, he wasn't raised in the magical world. He didn't know about it early on in his life. Um, but that um, that being alone over and over and over again, although. I think he would have he would have loved it because you know he's got this institutionalized side of himself that would have been surrounded by all these kids all the time and now he's got all of this freedom um, and this this fantastic place to to call his own it would reinforce that he was alone that he didn't have anywhere else to go that the only reason that he had somewhere that wasn't a children's home was because of Dumbledore's charity and I think he would have eventually come to resent him for that that institutionalized behavior you can see where that would start to create this disturbed kid who eventually became this incredibly powerful, evil person who had to lash out at everybody. And this was another thing that we talked about um, earlier. Uh, J.K. Rowling has said that the protection that, that Harry has from his the, the love of his family that he had when he was little, Tom never had that. He was in an orphanage and he didn't have anybody to care about him. So it's, it's almost like a there but for the grace of God situation. Harry has something very specific that Tom did not have. And that's why Tom has turned out the way he has and Harry hasn't. Now, when you say that, do you mean just in that first formative year of Harry's life? 
or from do you a, mean from a, from a for child the next 10 years of neglect from his aunt and uncle but you see this is the thing from a child development point of view if you if the early foundation um, stages of a child's life they have love and attention and care and they are um, you know they have somebody who comes to them when they cry and feeds them when they're hungry and wraps them up when they're cold there are certain parts of the brain which form in a certain way and if they don't have that if they are left in a cot to scream and go hungry until somebody remembers it's time to feed them um, then those parts of the brain don't form and it's it's very difficult for them to um, to to be formed later on in life and that's why early neglect um, and early harm is incredibly powerful in terms of forming somebody's personality so even though harry had neglect and and kind of it's it's kind of almost a benign neglect really it's not until he gets older that that um the dursleys really start lashing into him because he had that very early period of being looked after and being cared for and being loved that that would have started his mind developing in a certain way that would have given him a little bit more resource to cope with the fact that he was then neglected. It's interesting for me with Harry because throughout the series he is so much a boy in search of a father and yet at these times of real stress it's his mother that's a place of refuge and I think that um, it's not very hard to see the reason why. My mother died six months into the writing of Harry Potter and I became a mother to a daughter. So I just suppose that as a woman and as a daughter, maybe I feel that that's a form of love that doesn't get explored as much as it should do, given that it's in every, well, it's so formative in everyone's life, for good or for ill. Funnily enough, I founded a charity called Lumos which is about institutionalized children, largely in Eastern Europe. And some of the many disturbing things I found out from, from being involved closely with that charity is how much measure, measurable brain damage is done when a child is taken from its mother and placed in an institution. And when I say measurable, you can scan the brain and you will see that pathways haven't been made and you can never get that back. So in fact, what I wrote about Harry having been incredibly loved in his earliest days is measurably true. That will literally have given him protection that no one can undo. His brain will have developed in a way that Voldemort's brain didn't, because Voldemort was from the moment of his birth institutionalized. So I suppose, yeah, Lily was representative of safety in a way that a father couldn't be because he's constantly told you look just like your father, he's got to live up to the expectations of his father, his father, his father. But Lily is something different. Lily's the person who stood by the cot and tried to stop her baby dying. Harry, Mama loves you. Harry, be safe. So yes, mother love is hugely important in the book. It's amazing the kind of the levels that these stories have. Like you said, you, know, you can, you can. I, I kind of, as much as I was an English student at school, I didn't like dissecting books and looking in them for hidden meanings and things and so forth. You dissect these books, and you know, like listening to you talk about those. Like it just, it makes so much sense, and it makes the books feel so much more real and so well developed that you know i can't honestly can't think of anything else that i've read that would be this that, that would stand up this well under such scrutiny rich is a term that i uh, rich is a good term it is so brimming over with good stuff nourishing stuff just to finish off on tom riddle 
because he's had all of this time alone in the uh, holidays, um, it's no wonder he uh, did you know enough research and found the Chamber of Secrets. And uh, I'm fairly certain that he actually read. It never says what's in there apart from a giant statue of Salazar Slytherin, but I'm fairly certain he managed to read some thick things in there that were the uh, wizarding equivalent of Mein Kampf or something. And he was <laughs> like, yeah, you know what? All of these filthy mudbloods, they're the ones that are messing up the wizard world. And just feeding any poison that was inside him already. Maybe the statue was actually talking to him. Maybe it was. There's no reason why Salazar couldn't have just put it in various different, like what Marlon Brando does in Superman. Just, you know, various different teachings for whatever super racist comes his way in uh, in time. (laughs) Because if you can find the chamber, then you're worthy of my teachings. Mm. Again, though, um, when Salazar was ejected because he, he wanted to get rid of all non-pure bloods from uh, Hogwarts. They kept Slytherin house, though. Again, going to ask, why? Well, they didn't eject him, he left, one. didn't he? I, I, I could be wrong. Either way, he wasn't there anymore, I don't but they kept Slytherin. Went down in the book, but I, no, I said it. Said it in the last podcast. I'll say it again in this one. I don't understand why somebody didn't just look at Slytherin and go, "Hey, look, this is a bunch of racists who had <laughs> all of the dark wizards coming out of them." Maybe, maybe we should rethink this. Statistically, we can prove all of the Death Eaters were from this house. It's a bad thing. <sighs> I'm face palming right now. But then, at least if you've got all the, if you've got them organized into houses, and all the dark ones end up in Slytherin, you know which house to keep an eye on. If the if they abolished Slytherin and all of the Dark Wizards were interspersed between Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, and Ravenclaw, you wouldn't know who to look out for. Maybe had they done that, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, there would have been a lot more Dark Wizards rising up to kill everyone. Exactly, because you don't know where they're going to come from. Maybe so. Maybe this was just an anomaly. They never actually talked about anyone being as Darth Vader-ish as uh, as uh, Voldemort ended up being. Even no Slytherin, he may have, um, you know. But he did yeah, he didn't do any kind of purification exercises that that we're aware of. Although he (laughs) sure as hell knew something about Horcruxes. Yeah, but knowing and making them is not the same thing. Hmm. I wonder what the thing was that uh, Tom found how Tom found out about it. You might want to find out about Horcruxes. Go ask Slughorn. That's what the statue in the Chamber of Secrets actually was talking to him about. <laughs> hey, <laughs> dude, four cruxes, waving future. Me. You might want to check that out. Tell me you don't just press a button to get the statue to talk. It's kind of like the... Um... <laughs> Welcome to the Hall of Presidents. Exactly. That's what I was going for. <laughs> okay, we're off topic here. <laughs> just a little. You ever made a mushroom out of his head? Okay, so Lucius Malfoy. Anybody notice what spell he's about to cast on Harry at the very end when Harry really upsets him? Avada Kedavra. Now, we all missed that the first time around because I don't think they even started talking about Avada Kedavra until book four. No, the book hadn't come out by that point. Oh, no, hang on, no, book four had come out. Oh, had it? But for some reason, we didn't, I didn't notice that he was Avada, and it's like... What? You're going to kill him outside Dumbledore's office? Good good job, man. Good job. At, the, at which that point you sort of... suspicious at all. You'd stare at Harry's corpse and then look at Dobby and then go, Cheese it! <laughs> <laughs> um, at this point, Voldemort wasn't even back. What is the point of killing Harry Potter? You'd just... You'd go to Azkaban. I mean, and I know what? For, for, for something as pathetic as you, you, you freed my servant, then get yeah. another one. I'm sure he has other servants. Exactly. I could, 
it's almost it's more like Lucius that he'd start with Crucio or something. Mm. Like screw you, kid. I do absolutely love. I mean, you know, you get all those replica ones that you can buy in comic shops and and uh-huh. merchandise. I love Lucius's. The fact that it's just tucked into the top of that cane. Yes, I it's want the a coolest cane. wand in the entire series. Yes, I, I had I had that exact same thought when I was watching when I was doing my rewatch today. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I've always wanted a sword cane. I would be so much happier if it were <laughs> cane wand. Actually, what, speaking, of, speaking of swords, the, the Gryffindor, the sword of Grudger Gryffindor, oh. you can tell that has been made for a child. Yeah. It's like a large oh. letter opener. Mm-hmm. It's. Cr- I was expecting something like from Lord of the Rings, you know, one of those big, hefty swords. And it's, it's like, something twice the size of Harry that you can't even lift. It looks like something that came out of a cracker. <laughs> there had to have been a happy medium, something that would have maybe been a hand and a half sword for uh, an adult male who's used to swinging swords, but for Harry would have been uh, almost more of a, a full-size sword. But the trouble is that when they bring it back in Deathly Hallows, which is where yeah. it's needed, it looks it even looks, more pathetic. It looks somewhat ridiculous. Because now it's in the hand of a teenager. Yeah. Um, the close, I mean, uh, Peter's sword in uh, Line the Witch in the Wardrobe. Yes. The best. Yeah. It looks special, and it's it's just the right size for Peter, although an adult could have it, and it would look a bit more ceremonial. And why, oh why, when Dumbledore hands him the sword in the office, oh, goodness. does Harry <laughs> take it by the blade? Yes. By the blade. The thereby demonstrating how sharp it is not. <laughs> Don't forget the venom. He's, he's, a sm- he's the sort of kid who runs around with scissors. You can just tell. <laughs> I mean, you, at no, least... Cool. We've got Fox right here. If something happens, he'll just cry on me and everything will be fine. <laughs> Dumbledore could have gone, I'll wipe this off. Maybe he was going, well, let's let it take into itself what doesn't kill it. Mm. But he still wouldn't hand it back to Harry. He just have said, tapped it and said, the sword of Godric Gryffindor, no, don't touch it for goodness sake. It's razor sharp and covered in basilisk venom. You just hope that Harry washed his hands, because if he just goes down, you know, he's, he's just nearly been killed by Lucius Malfoy. He needs to be calmed down, so he goes to the kitchen, has a snack, picks up a cake, bites into it, then realises, what's that weird, funny smell? Hawks <laughs> comes flying in again. Oh, for goodness sake. I'm so, I'm so glad you went with snack. I didn't know where you were going with that one. <laughs> Anyway, um, there's the other thing is, he says, can I borrow that diary? And he runs out to, to hoodwink uh, Malfoy. Surely Dumbledore would go, um, no, no, actually you can't borrow I, this. I think I should back. probably keep this. He might it's not realise it straight away, but it had Voldemort's soul in it before. It's <laughs> still been definitely confirmed as dead. In the book, he does say, hey, I'm going to go give this back to Lucius, you know, I that's cool, right? And I, I think I think that Dumbledore is sharp enough to probably pick up that there's a little bit more to that. But in the movie, you're absolutely right. It, it just kind of goes as, oh, yeah, go ahead and take that thing that almost Joint. killed us all. <laughs> Why not take the sword? Just cut him down. Still fresh yeah, Absolutely. Venom. Go Make for sure it. you take it by the blade, kid. It's all right. We've still got plenty of school governors. We won't miss him. <laughs> Two, uh, a couple more things that are differences from the book. Ron never says why he's scared of spiders. You've just read the book, Leah. Why? Um, it's because when he was younger, the twins changed his teddy bear into a spider. Nice. I and forgot that. Out. That's brilliant. Nice. So, I was going to tell him that uh, spider's asking me to tap dance. He's got a tap dance for you. I just don't like spiders. 
You tell those sap spiders, you want. There's a, one great little tiny deleted line where Colin Creevy turns up and goes, Oh, Harry, fantastic knowing all about you. I mean, I've got, I'm coming from a muggle family, so I was the first one who could do magic tricks. People just might have thought I was mental or something. And he delivers it so well, and I really <laughs> wish they'd left it in. They cut the entire subplot with Percy and his girlfriend. Um, yeah, although there was, was a the, nod to that. There was a nod to that. when um, Yes, because they, they go by and they're, I, I, they're either holding hands or they're just walking yeah. together or something. But, that, yeah. um, but she's actually actually with Hermione when Hermione is petrified and they both are um, right. but there's that and there's also um, the, the second person who gets petrified um, I don't think is the same in the movie and the book because uh, in the movie it was another Muggleborn who in another deleted scene admits to Harry that he was a Muggleborn ju- just before the duel yeah he's got a great big Justin. chin Justin yeah, Justin that's right because he gets he um, in the book, he uh, he also tells that same thing to Harry, but it's he's not the one that gets petrified. I don't think he just right. he gets freaked out by Harry a little later on and kind of steers clear of him until he's sure that he's not the one doing all of this. To briefly go back to the duel, I do like just one of the most amazing moments of the film where you can really tell the the, the child actors and they are child actors, you know, so they, their experience is quite limited. You can see that they're much more comfortable this time round. Because first time they're all, there's a lot of pressure on them to get it right first time. This time, the Malfoy versus Potter, scared Potter, you wish. It's like you can tell they were both absolutely loving that scene. And they felt so much more comfortable in what they were doing. It's yes. still, even now, I'm like, fucking bring it on. You can't say the F word on sorry. this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Even now, I watch it and I'm like, bring it on. Uh, the other thing that is actually pretty significant, original voices after the Polyjuice Potion. In the books, confirm this one, Leah, they, their voice boxes change to go with the person they've, uh, they're imitating. I don't believe they ever actually mention it. it it's ah. just not a thing. But they do. Also, like, in, 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 any other, in, in any other occasion of the films, mm. well, certainly, certainly with... Um, you mean the 17 times they do it in the last book? <laughs> yeah, when, when no, there's Polyjuice... right, Matt, I... Mad-Eye is what I'm thinking of. Yes, yeah, sorry. Not, not the, the rest of the film. Like in Deathly Hallows, they still keep their original voices. But Mad-Eye has, or, or Barty Crouch Jr., has Mad-Eye's voice. Killing mudbloods doesn't matter to me anymore. For many months now, my new target has been you. How is it that a baby with no extraordinary magical talent was able to defeat the greatest wizard of all time? How did you escape with nothing but a scar, while Lord Voldemort's powers were destroyed. Why do you care how I escaped? Voldemort was after your time. Voldemort is my past, present, and future. You're the heir of Slytherin. You're Voldemort. Surely you didn't think I was going to keep my filthy muggle father's name? No. I fashioned myself a new name, a name I knew wizards everywhere would one day fear to speak when I became the greatest sorcerer in the world. Albus Dumbledore is the greatest sorcerer in the world. Dumbledore's been driven out of this castle by the mere memory of me. He'll never be gone. Not as long as those who remain are loyal to him. Fox.
So from the sounds of it, um, because the two ones that came from Forks, because only ever, he ever, only ever made two from him, Voldemort's wand and Harry's wand. Did they actually say that it's from Fox? Yep. I had totally forgotten that. Did they say that in the film? I think it's Dumbledore explains that the reason that in the graveyard they couldn't defeat each other was that they are both using effectively the same wand. Well, no, they do say in the in the first book that Ollivander says it when he when he gets the wand, doesn't he? Yeah, exactly. They do say that it's from the same phoenix. I just wasn't aware that it was from Fox. No, it's it's Fox. Huh. It is. I don't can't remember where. I'll find out. But that is. Uh, I will, tell you what. If it's not true, I won't put this in the podcast. <laughs> so if you're hearing this, it's true. Um, <laughs> so interestingly, it ends up as a sort of weird narrative contrivance. Both Harry and Voldemort have to ditch their wands. Mm. I think actually Harry's wand breaks, and Voldemort discards his just so that they can kill each other with different ones. Mm. And Fawkes himself disappears after book slash film five. He get he gets Dumbledore out of his office when he's going to be arrested by the Ministry, and then I don't think he ever comes back again. I think he might be flying across the loch at the end of the sixth film, after the unhappy event. Mm. But that's it. That's that's uh, that's Fawkes' time on screen. This is the movie that scored the lowest in the Gonzo Planet Forum poll of favourite Harry Potter films, garnering a measly 6.3% of the votes. Why do you think? I think it's because it's not, it doesn't initially seem to be that significant for the series. So the first one obviously is the first one, is the entry into the world. The third one introduces Sirius back and starts to link into the saga. Fourth one is where everything kicks off. Fifth one is where you find out the prophecy. Sixth one is where the... It's not just what's going on. As of the third film onwards, as you said, they become films. Yes, exactly. Whereas the second one is just... Hey, here's a nice way of showing what happened in the book. Yeah, the the second one is just... It's a standalone adventure that happened to be second in the series. It it doesn't contribute to the... it, It doesn't seem like it contributes to the overall saga. That makes kind of makes sense. I was not blown away by Chamber the first time I saw it at all. Um, I was actually more impressed with Chamber than I was with the first one because uh, it just seemed like a little bit more more tight. They'd, they'd gotten everyone had gotten the swing of things and everyone was less self conscious. I think that technically Chamber is a better movie, but I, I think that James are right that as part of the series, it does not do as much. The things that I saw in Chamber the last couple of times I've seen it, are entirely in retrospect of having now seen the whole series. Mm. Mm. And another thing, as, as we leave now, uh, before we uh, pimp our shows, um, this is probably at the very end when Hagrid comes back and Hermione comes back and everything's rosy, the happiest moment in Harry's time at Hogwarts to be not tinged by sadness and regret and loss ever. Aside from possibly when he initially gets there, I would agree. Yeah, uh, uh, after the initial getting there, and there's a brief moment, very brief, after the Shrieking Shack, before Lupin turns, when he's just gotten himself a family again, Mm. uh, where Sirius says he's going to look after him, and Gary Oldman does the best bit of acting he he manages to put out in the entire uh, series, where he's looking back at uh, Hogwarts and saying he's really looking forward to walking in there as a free man. And Harry is actually seeing his life take an upturn when he thought he was going to die seconds beforehand after that moment everything is starts to be tinged by loss because he has that taken away from him and at the end of with four everything starts going not so much downhill all the time but there's more and more taken away from him so basically this is the last gasp of absolute innocence in harry's life 
he's he's managed to hold on to it through two encounters with Voldemort, and it's just everything is rosy, and it's from the beginning of the third one where things start to take a darker turn appropriately. So it kind of it's really fitting actually that the first two are this sweet and this honey coloured, as I said last week. I was very um, prickly when I met Steve. Because uh, I knew they, they'd chosen this American guy, even though he wrote and directed one of my favourite films, was Fabulous Baker Boys. I still thought, well, you know, he's American. <laughs> Not to be—I don't know. I just—I I, was—he was—I was most worried about meeting Steve. He was the writer. He was going to be ripping apart my baby, and um, turns out I really like him, so that worked. <laughs> And Joe, were there any bits of Chamber of Secrets that didn't reflect the way that you originally saw it in your mind? It's interesting what Steve says about the mudblood um, theme, because I would agree, but that's, that's always pressure of time and space with the film, that um, that is a stronger theme in the book. And yet it is, it is present in the film. But um, for me, I suppose, I, when I look back on that book or I think about that book, that is, that, that is the time in the overall series where the issue of pure blood becomes, um, becomes very important. So, yeah, maybe, maybe more weight to that. And if you look through the deleted scenes, there were a lot more references to the fact that the people getting offed by the basilisk were uh, not pure blood. And you could see how Tom, through... Ginny would be sort of, you know, looking around this world and going, right, her, right, him. There is actually more emphasis in the book on the notion of dirty blood. Mm -hmm. But I think it's still there, definitely, in the film. And as the film goes on, and specifically by the time you get to Seven, the notion of intolerance is absolutely firmly set in place. And you understand not only the symptoms of it, but the terrible outcome if it's allowed to go unchecked. So, yeah, this is the stirrings of that. And it's when Harry's world starts darkening. And interestingly enough, the lighting scheme, and I don't know if you guys noticed, but um, the first one's very, like shot a lot in the daytime and a lot of sort of, you know, kind of cheesecloth moments of, of light. In this, it's a lot of walking around dark corridors lit by torches. Mm. It's it, Harry's world is already starting to darken. So even though they may look the same, if you study them frame by frame and compare the two, it's already starting to get towards the proper film. So I actually, I prefer this one to the first. There is a lot more of Harry being on his own as well. The first um, film is very much setting him up in this world and introducing him to it. The second one isolates him from it and draws him apart from the people that he has uh, suddenly found this, this connection with and this um, uh, companionship with. I would have a very difficult time picking whether this was my... Between this and the first as which one I, I liked more, I think... Just because it, because of one where one fits more neatly into the storyline, and the other is possibly just a better film. You don't have to make that choice. I'm never <laughs> going to make anyone make that choice. Right. So before we go, James, as our guest, you pimp the show. <laughs> um, you can find my show Game Burst. It's a twice weekly games podcast. You can find it at GameBurst.co.uk. Uh, you can find me at GamerDork.net, where I am also. Uh, I guess, I guess by default, I'm kind of the lead host on uh, the podcast there as well, and um, I also can be found on uh, Gonzo Planet. I am mostly on Twitter, uh, but my scribblings can be found on Gonzo Planet also. I don't know what music we can leave you with because last week we left you with the same bit of music that this film ends on. So, Every uh, single podcast shall end on the same music. Leave, leave with them um, Fox's theme. Fox's theme is, is the the signature theme for this. 
You are absolutely right, sir. Let us leave on Fawkes' theme. It's actually a really lovely piece of warm-hearted music and goes very well with it. It's John Williams' redeeming piece for this film. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Take it away, Mr. Williams. We will see you very soon for part three, The Prisoner of Azkaban. I've been Alex Shaw. You've been listening to the Digital Gonzo Harry Potter podcast. And I solemnly swear I am up to no good. Another terrible example that they could have done was uh, The Mummy Returns. Uh, Imhotep speaks in Egyptian and you see subtitles and it zooms in on his mouth and then the subtitles and the the speech match and you realise he's speaking English and then it zooms out and now he's speaking English. Right. But you know that that's still meant to be Egyptian. (laughs) I know, it doesn't work either. Arnold Vosloo ruined shots. That much we know already. <laughs> There's a bit at the end of The Mummy Returns, I'm never going to do this for uh, uh, Gonzo, where Brendan Fraser's character chucks the Spear of Destiny and it hits the Scorpion King, and the Scorpion King goes down and it's like, yeah, he saved the day. And then he's standing triumphant, and then yes. Arnold Vosloo runs in from the side and goes, no! <laughs> and it completely ruins the shots. Like, Possibly one of yeah! my favourite moments of that film, just because it's so ridiculous. I cannot think of any other examples of a place me, where somebody screaming no would have ruined something. Me, me, me and my friend, me and my friend. No! <laughs> me, me and my sister actually that nigh moment, like for years after we saw that film, if ever there was a point where we both thought something was terrible, and comically we'd just look at each other and go. Nice. I can't wait for the 3D version of The Empire Strikes Back. I love you. I know. <laughs> I want. I want them to put in little Boba Fett in an Arnold Vosloo style. So as Samuel Jackson just lops off Django's head, suddenly the little kid runs in and goes, "No!" <laughs> <laughs> Jesus.